Uh, turn with me, please, to the second chapter of Acts. Acts 2. We broke uh, right out of the middle of Peter's message last, last week, stopped him midstream, and we want to pick up uh, in, uh, with the second division of, of his message. This is a remarkable sermon, an example of apostolic preaching. Peter uh, preached with such power and, and persuasion that when he came to his conclusion, 3,000 people arrived there with him. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, example of, of what uh, happens when one declares the gospel in the power of, of the Holy Spirit. Luke's a good historian. He not only gives us historical facts, but he also tells us a great deal about the people that were involved in these actions and uh, samples of their, uh, of their preaching, their exposition. Uh, there are a number of these. There's one here in chapter 2 of Peter, one in uh, chapters 3 and 4 of the same apostle. Chapter 7, Luke gives us a sample of Stephen's uh, ministry. And uh, in chapters 13 and 17 and 20, uh, an example of, of Paul's teaching. Each of these messages seems to follow the same pattern. They, uh, they seem to have the same outline in all of their, of their teaching. They usually began with an announcement that the age to come had come. And we saw an example of that last week in the first division of, of Peter's message. Uh, this is it, Peter says. What Joel predicted, the uh, age of the Spirit that he anticipated has come. And this is normally where the apostles began. They announced that the messianic era had come. The kingdom for which the whole world was waiting was uh, here. And this was, uh, this was where they began. And we need to remind ourselves again that, that, that we are in the last days, as the apostles put it. The last days are not some far-off uh, future period. They are the period between the first and second comings of Christ. It's very clear from Scripture. We're living in this, in this age now. Now, this is where the apostles would begin. They would point out that Messiah has indeed come. He didn't come and set up the sort of kingdom that everyone anticipated, but uh, he is here. The age to come has come. Then the second thing they would do was explain the events surrounding the Passion Week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, because it didn't fit with Jewish anticipation, particularly the, the crucifixion, because the cross was a, an accursed thing, as, as Deuteronomy puts it. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And uh, Messiah was one who was to be blessed of God, and they couldn't put these two ideas together. How could someone who was blessed be at the same time cursed? And so it was always necessary for the apostles to explain how these things could be. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ needed to be explained. And then the third step in their preaching was to ground everything in Scripture. They always went back to the Old Testament, which was the Jewish Bible, the only Bible that they had, and point out that all of these events that they had seen, what had occurred in, in Jerusalem during those fateful days, all of that was anticipated in, in the Old Testament. They rooted it in Scripture. And then the final note was a call to repentance to the nation and to individuals. And as we saw last week, Peter begins his message with an announcement that the age to come had come, the age that Joel anticipated when Messiah would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, was explained by the phenomena that, that surrounded the day of Pentecost. This is that, Peter said. Now we pick up his message in uh, verse 22 of chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep it, its hold on him. David said about him, I foresaw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath, him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And that's the main body of his message on Pentecost. He begins by stating that Jesus was a man attested or accredited by God by miracles and signs and wonders. In other words, when Jesus came, he had the right credentials. Anyone who knew the Old Testament would know that, uh, that the signs and miracles which Jesus performed, the things which he did, were all intended to... Uh, to validate his, his office. He was the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah came, he would uh, give sight to the blind, he would open the ears of the deaf, he would loosen the tongues of the dumb. Of the dumb. Uh, that's one of the ways they would know when he came, because he would have a, a wonder-working ministry. He would be a healer. And when Jesus came, he did all of these things. He healed the blind and the lame and the sick. And they should have put two and two together and said, that's, that's the Messiah. Those, those signs mark him out as the one anticipated uh, by the Old Testament, by the prophets. But as you know, they, uh, they credited the miracles to Satan. That was the, uh, the source that they pointed to. He does these things, they said, by Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. And that's what Jesus said was the unpardonable sin, attributing to Jesus the works of uh, demons or Satan himself. In other words, they refused to believe that he was the Messiah, though he came in the proper way and he had the marks of the Messiah. And as long as they refused to believe that those signs were God's authenticating mark upon him, they could not be saved. That's what made this sin unpardonable. It's not that once uh, committed, there, there was no salvation. The point is that as long as they attributed his works to Satan, there was no other way that they could be saved. Now, as Peter puts it, you know these things happened. You were there. You saw him. You walked with him through the streets of Jerusalem. You saw him lay hands upon the sick. You, you saw him raise the dead. You knew that he did these things. And by the way, there, there are a number of, of uh, documents from this period that state that Jesus was a miracle worker. But uh, the question is, to whom or to what do we attribute those miracles? Did they come from God? If so, then he must be who he claimed to be. That's the point that Peter is making. He was authenticated. He had the proper credentials. 
couple of weeks back, a number of us uh, were in a group that gave Steve Newman, a, Stephen Holly Newman, a going away party. Some of the staff and elders and some of his friends, and and uh, it was a it was really a fun time. We sat around and reminisced over our experiences with uh, Steve over the past years, and uh, there were a lot of laughs. And one that one that I remembered most vividly was a trip that Steve and I and a number of other students took to Mexico back in the late 60s. We went down to uh, Mexico City to work with students at the University of the Americas and at the University of Mexico uh, through the auspices of Overseas Crusades. And we were warned ahead of time that uh, uh, we ought to dress properly because they had a, a lot of problems with students uh, going into Mexico and creating... Uh, uh, unrest there, Marxists and others. And so they warned us that we ought to uh, dress properly. And, and uh, I told the men that were going on the trip to be sure and wear ties and to look neat. And they were pretty freaky looking back in those days. Steve had shoulder-length hair and a long, droopy mustache, and he doesn't look at all like he looks today. And when I pulled uh, by his fraternity house to pick him up, he came out with a pair of red, white, blue striped bell-bottom pants. <laughs> and uh, an old cord jacket that I'm sure had been thrown in the bottom of his closet for months. It was all wadded up, and he had a purple paisley shirt on and no tie. And I said, Steve, where's your tie? We've got to wear a tie. And so he, reached, he had a, a plastic garment bag, and all of his clothes were just thrown in the bottom of it. They weren't hanging. You could see right through it, and here's this big wad of clothing in the bottom. And he reaches down, and he pulls out this green striped tie. <laughs> Proceeds to tie it on. And needless to say, we really had problems. When we got to the border, they checked us up and down, and here were these strange, weird people trying to, to cause problems in their country. And I had foreseen all of this, and so I had a number of letters uh, <laughs> from overseas crusades and from people in Mexico City, and I had cards in my billfold establishing that I was a pastor at Peninsula Bible Church, and, and yet I had an extremely difficult time getting across the border, and we had a very hard time getting out because uh, they just wouldn't believe us. You are a pastor at Peninsula Bible Church associated with a motley crew like this. <laughs> Strikes me that that's somewhat the problem that Jesus had. They, 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 they just did not believe that he was who he claimed he was because he didn't seem to come through the proper channels. He was always throwing them a curve. Things didn't seem to be right. He wasn't what they anticipated. Nevertheless, as Peter puts it, he had the proper credentials. He produced them at the proper time, and they should have believed him. Now, this man, he says, you put to death. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge in you with the help of wicked men. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This one who bore the proper credentials, you lynched. Now, you have to remember that many of the people standing in front of Peter were, um, they had been in Jerusalem during the events, during the time of the Passover week, uh, week and had been involved in the crucifixion. And were in the mob that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And, and some may have been the, uh, from the officials who egged them on. And yet Peter has the audacity and the courage to say to this group of people, you killed him. Peter was laying his life on the line because they could just as well have, have lynched him. But the interesting thing is that Peter implies, in fact states very clearly, that God himself, was involved in the Passover plot. You put him to death, he says, through the hands of wicked men, that is, through the, through the Roman officials. But God had planned and predetermined the events of, of that week. It did not catch God by surprise. He did not say, 
when the trial took place, well, plan one is, is uh, invalid now. We've got to go to another plan. Let's try plan B. We'll do the resurrection to set things right. No, no, from the very beginning it had been determined that the Lord would suffer and die. That was part of the plan. Didn't catch God by surprise. The Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were not an afterthought. They were always part of, of God's redemptive plan, his plan to set things right in the world. Now, here you have a, an interesting combination of two ideas which seem to be mutually exclusive. They appear to be contradictory. God is responsible, and yet man is responsible. How do we put those two together? He says, you men are culpable. You did it. You put him to death. And yet it was all according to God's plan. How can we reconcile what seemed to be two, two contradictory ideas of paradox? Well, we can't. I really can't. The apostles never tried to. There's simply two facts which seem to contradict each other, but yet both are true. And I find at different times in my life that the trusting in God's sovereignty is, is a very uh, helpful and encouraging thing to know that, that the world is not running out of control, that God is shaping every event in history toward his redemptive purposes. I believe that, and that's comforting. But at the same time, I'm not a computer. I haven't been programmed. I'm not an automaton. I'm, I'm free. I can choose, and I'm responsible for my actions. Both are true. God is working in our lives. God brings every circumstance that we experience into our lives. God gave you your parents. He gave you the hard circumstances of your youth. He's, he will cheerfully and gladly accept the responsibility for that. He will not shirk it. And yet at the same time, we cannot say, because he is responsible for the parents he gave to me, I am therefore free from any responsibility. We can't say I'm, I'm uh, insecure and and threatened and mean because my parents made me this way. We can't do that because our mothers abandoned us or our fathers were cold and aloof. We can't say that that's why I'm cold and aloof. We just can't do that. I, I can't say because I'm British, I'm cold. And uh, that explains my re reserve, which is really just a lack of love or because I'm Latin, I'm hot-blooded and high-tempered and volatile, and I can't, uh, can't be blamed for that. But Peter puts it on the line. He says, God was responsible, but so are you. So are you. I, I, can't, I can't put those two facts together. They're what are called in logic an antinomy. They're against the law. They don't make sense. But God said it. And one of these days he's going to explain it, and in the meantime I just have to live with it. The events of the cross did not catch up, got up short. He knew they were coming. He planned them. And yet the people who committed this foul deed are responsible. He said, you murdered the Messiah, the man uh, on whom God had placed his, his, his seal of approval. You put him to death. As uh, Paul puts it in, a, in another place, you put to death the Lord of glory. That shows how wise we are. Also shows how far we'll go in our sin. We think we can temporize with sin. We can play around with it. We can control it, but we can't. It led us at one time in history to put God to death, the one who saved us. We're like a drowning man who tries to drown the person who, who comes out to save us. He became the only good man who ever lived, and we put him to death. And you say, 
what do you mean we? But that's exactly what I mean. It's just a good thing that Jesus came 1,900 years ago to Palestine because had he come to Boise, Idaho in 1982, we would have put him to death. That's just the way we are. That's how far our sin will, will take us. And Peter lays it on the line. You did it. You murdered the Lord of glory. But God reversed the sentence of, of death. God raised him from the dead, freeing, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's the uniqueness of our faith, the resurrection. It really happened, as I've said over and over again. It wasn't a fraud. It wasn't a hoax. Not a trick. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It was a real physical resurrection. Jesus' body came out of that tomb, and he walked the streets of Jerusalem, and they saw him, and they touched him, and they ate with him, and they, they knew that it had really happened. It was not mass hysteria. They knew it. And to me, one of the incidental proofs of the resurrection of Christ is that Jesus could stand before the very people who put him to death less than two months after his resurrection and say he rose from the dead, and no one could challenge it. The, the officials would have given anything to produce the body of Jesus. Anything. But they didn't. They couldn't answer him. They'd heard the rumors. They'd talked to people who had seen him. And his argument uh, came home. And Peter does what I said the apostles frequently do is their third step. He roots his teaching in Scripture. Quotes a section of Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. David said. This is a psalm that's attributed to David. The title says that David uh, composed it, and there's no good reason to, uh, to uh, deny David's authorship. And certainly the, an inspired apostle here says that David wrote it. And he says, I saw the Lord always before me. The, the New American Standard, I think, is wrong in placing the always at the front of the sentence. It sounds as though it's David atti David's attitude that he always places the Lord before his presence, but that's not what what David said originally. He said, I see the Lord, and he uses the word here that's translated behold in the New American Standard, or saw here in the NIV. It's the word foresaw that Peter uses later when he says Peter foresaw one of, or when Peter says that David foresaw one of his, one of his descendants. In other words, he saw before the time the Lord before his face always. That's the point. His relationship with God was not uh, temporal or, or temporary. It was eternal. And having begun to walk with God, he knew that he would walk with God forever. That when he died, that would just be the beginning of another relationship. He would always see the Lord before his face. He spoke this by, uh, by inspiration. Don't let anyone ever tell you that these Old Testament saints did not know about a resurrection. They did. They did. They understood that because they believed in the character of God. They knew that God would never give up on his friends. And David goes on to say, Because he is at my right hand, he's standing by me, I will not be shaken. That's the secret to stability in this life, is walking with God. Because he's here and standing by me, and he's my strength, and he's what I need for life. I can be stable and secure. Therefore, he says, my heart is glad. That ought to gladden any heart. My tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. In other words, death is not the end. I live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made, me known, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence forever. And the, Peter does not quote the last line of the psalm, which goes, 
In your presence there is joy forever. In other words, it's, it's as though the Lord moves in alongside of David and, and he walks with David and then at the end of David's life he takes his hand and he says, David, let's just keep on walking on forever. And David said, that's my hope. I'm not going to decay in, in the grave. I have a greater hope than to die and, and pass from the scene. There's something more. I'm going to keep on walking with God forever. That's his point. Now, David said these words. It's interesting to see how Peter applies them because he says, in effect, it's really Messiah who says these things. David spoke with reference to him. In other words, Peter puts these words, David's words, that were spoken in the 10th century before Christ by David to his contemporaries about his times and his circumstances and his feelings about life, and he puts those very words in the mouth of Messiah. Peter says, now we know it wasn't David that these, uh, in, in whom these words are, are ultimately fulfilled, but one of his descendants, because David, we know, died, and he's in his grave. We can point to it today. It must be someone else whose body did not see corruption. David's words go far beyond anything that could be said of him. It must apply to one of his descendants. He said he knew that God was going to put one of his descendants on the throne. And remember the study we had some weeks back in 2 Samuel 7, and God's promise to David that he would have an eternal throne, and one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Peter says David knew. That this, uh, these words were not fulfilled in his life, but in the life of his descendant. He was speaking of his Messiah, his Lord, who is yet future. Incidentally, that's a great way to read the Psalms. We have uh, a lot of uh, verification from other apostles that that's, that's a good way to read the Psalms. Read them as though Jesus himself were speaking, I think, personally. Although this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think that all of the Psalms are messianic. All find their application ultimately in, in Jesus. And if we read them that way, it gives us a great deal of understanding of, of our Lord and what he went through, for example, as he anticipated the cross and the sort of feelings that he had as, as he made his way through, through life. But in any case, Peter says, these words are not fulfilled in, in David. We know that because David was buried. They're fulfilled ultimately in his descendant, his greater descendant, Christ. And then finally, oh, one other point in verse 32. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. There are really two proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. There's the Old Testament that anticipated his resurrection, as Psalm 16 clearly states. And secondly, Peter says, we're all witnesses. We saw it. We join our witness with the witness of David, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, you have in those two statements... The, uh, the source from which we get all of our information about Jesus, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament uh, apostles. There are no other sources. You don't have to look any other place for information about Jesus. He doesn't speak to us any longer, it seems, through dreams or through visitations of, of angels or, or Christ himself appearing. Uh, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, God who spoke to the prophets has spoken to us in his Son, and uh, the Son authenticated the ministry of the apostles, and they tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. We don't need any other source than what we have right here in, in Scripture. This is, this is our primary source for the 
for the life and teachings of, of our Lord and the faith that, that we all believe. And secondly, I would say, the only Jesus that we, could, we should ever seriously consider is the Jesus that's taught in the Bible. Uh, there's simply no other, uh, there's no other way to know anything about him. And if someone teaches another Jesus, as Paul puts it, don't believe him. It's not the, it's not the real thing, not the, the real person. I have a, a running a debate by letter going with uh, our friend Bill Edlin up in McCall. Uh, I'm sure most of you have read his, his columns in the, uh, in the uh, Statesman. And my argument with Bill is not that he has no right to say those things. Anyone has the right to say anything they want or write anything they want to. That's, he's perfectly within his rights. My argument is that we cannot construct another gospel and say that is Christianity. We just don't have the right to do that. It isn't fair. As uh, Brian Fisher put in his uh, comment in the letter to the editors this past week, it didn't cricket. It just isn't right. You can't make Jesus anything you want to and say that's Christianity. I have the right to say anything I want to about Jesus. I don't have to believe him. I can reject him. God gives us the right to do that. But I can't refer to him as the Christ of Scripture and the Christ of Christians unless I define him in, in, in the terms that the disciples and the apostles, the, the prophets, use. Now, Peter says these are the two strong arguments that I want to adduce. One, the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament, and secondly, our own eyewitness accounts. And then fourthly, uh, Peter makes the point that he was exalted to the right hand of God in verse 33, and he is the one who has poured out this Holy Spirit. The uh, rabbis said on the basis of Joel that when Jesus came, or when Messiah came, he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. And uh, Peter is simply explaining that though this, uh, this didn't happen exactly the way they anticipated, they thought Messiah would come and take the world by storm and pour out his Spirit upon the flesh, on all flesh, and they did not anticipate his death, burial, and resurrection. Nevertheless, he has been exalted. In other words, he is seated today on the throne that is rightfully his. He is the king, Messiah, uh, exalted in heavenly places. And uh, he has poured out this that we have experienced on the day of, of Pentecost. And then he drives his argument home in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. That was the punchline. He's the one. He's the king. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's interesting to me that when they saw the signs on the day of Pentecost, their response was, what does this mean, in verse 12? When they heard the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, they said, what shall we do? In other words, the signs simply aroused their curiosity. It was Peter's bold, forthright proclamation of the gospel done in the power of an indwelling spirit that brought about conviction. And when you read through the account, it's just a very straightforward account, persuasive, but but really uh, merely a very straightforward appeal. What drove it home was the gospel itself, the words of the gospel, delivered in a sense of dependence upon the Spirit of God. Truth is its own best witness. We don't have to defend the gospel. We just have to proclaim it. And when we proclaim it clearly, it always impacts people. They may not always believe it, but they know they have to do something. They cannot be neutral. 
I've long believed that miracles and signs really do not convince anyone. They didn't convince the Jews of Jesus' day. They had another explanation for them. People will always have explanations for miracles. What drives people to repentance is the clear, straightforward preaching of the gospel by people like Peter and by people like you and me, just laying the facts on the line. That's all we have to do. We don't have to be bright or clever or highly educated or witty or even particularly persuasive. We just have to be willing to share the facts. That's all, That's all Peter did, just laid it out. And look at the response. What shall we do? I have a friend who was involved some years ago in the search for the ark. And uh, he was involved in a project. They were going to go to Ararat and find the ark. And his argument to me was, when we find the ark, the world will be convinced that the Bible is true. And I said, Paul, I just don't believe it. They'll have another explanation. Those sorts of things never convinced anyone. There's all sorts of archaeological evidence. There's all sorts of historical evidence that the Bible is true. People don't believe that. What causes people to believe is proclamation of the truth, delivered in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And look at what happened. 3,000 people responded when, when Peter preached this simple message. Jesus said that the apostles would do greater things than he did, and I can't point to a single incident in Jesus' life where he had anything like the impact upon his times that Peter had when he preached this simple message, and 3,000 people responded. So what shall we do? What do we do now? How shall we be saved? And Peter tells them, two demands and two results. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, that is, for you and the next generation and for the Gentiles as well, although Peter didn't, didn't quite understand how this would work out yet. It wasn't until you get further into the book of Acts that it finally came home to the apostles that the Gentiles could be saved without becoming Jews. But he knew from the book of Isaiah that the Gentiles would be included, and so he says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will, will call. Two things he said you have to do. You have to repent and you have to be baptized. Now, by repent, he does not mean feel sorrow. We don't have to go down to a mourner's bench and weep over our sins. We ought to. We really ought to. But we don't always feel sorrowful about our sins. The word repentance doesn't have any idea of sorrow. It's, the word uh, originally had the idea of an afterthought, to second-guess yourself, and then later it came to have the idea of changing your mind about something. You're going in this direction, and you, you change your mind and go in another direction. And that's what Peter says you have to do about Messiah. You put him to death. You didn't believe it. He was who he claimed he was and who God said he was. You need to change your mind about him and move in another direction. And that's what God says to us today. It's not merely praying some prayer and asking Christ to come into our life. We really do have to decide that we're going to make a, a, a new course for our life. We're going to let Christ be Lord. We're going to let him move in alongside and rule and control and be king of our life. We cannot go through life living our life any old way. That's not what salvation is. I'm a firm believer in, in eternal security, or what theologians call the perseverance of the saints, but I believe that rightly defined, the idea is that those who are truly regenerated are given grace to persevere to the end. But I don't think we're truly regenerated until we're willing to change the direction of our lives and make Christ the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't fail. We do. 
We all fail. I don't know about you. I do. But, but that's not the issue. The issue is do we want Christ to be Lord? Are we really willing to change the direction of our life and go in an entirely new direction and give up our hold on, on things in our life that, uh, that for us are more important than, than Christ himself? Are we willing to follow him wholeheartedly? That was Peter's message to this crowd, and it's his message to us. We need to repent. And secondly, he says we need to be baptized. Now, that strikes us as odd, particularly when we know that it's not baptism that, that saves us, because the New Testament clearly says that if you're going to pick any uh, right on which to base your salvation, it would be circumcision, but circumcision never saved anyone. It's simply a sign, an outward sign of some inward reality. And that's the way Peter is using the term here. You have to be baptized as a sign of your willingness to cut yourself off from the old life. Now, the Jews knew a great deal about baptism. This wasn't a new concept to them. They baptized proselytes. They baptized Gentiles who wanted to be Jews as a sign of their identification with God's people. A Gentile would uh, decide he was going to turn, turn around and go in another direction and follow God through Judaism, and he would be baptized as a sign of of his identification with the people of, of God. And that's what was so remarkable about John's baptism. When he came preaching a baptism uh, of repentance, uh, what he was saying is that you Jews are not God's people. You Jews need to be baptized. You're just like the Gentiles. You need to be identified with the believing remnant. That's why he was called John the Baptizer. That was the uniqueness of his ministry. That's what struck them as so odd and so profound at the same time. And so when Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized, they knew exactly what he meant. They needed to change their mind about Messiah, stop resisting him, stop continuing the attitude that originally killed him, acquiesce to his lordship, and be baptized as an outward sign of that repentance. And Peter says, two things will happen to you. You'll be forgiven, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit just like we did. You'll receive forgiveness for all of your sins, past present, future, all the dreadful, dreary things we did in the past are put away. They're done. They're forgotten and forgiven. God never holds them up uh, before us again. Uh, we cannot be blamed. We're forgiven. And secondly, we're given power for a new life. We're given the Holy Spirit as the uh, 120 and, and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. We're filled and flooded with God himself, given power to resist temptation and to struggle and win over sin and habits that, that long have, have dominated us. And Luke tells us that Peter went on warning them, pleading with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation that is those who rejected Christ. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And we say, well, that was back then when things were different and, and uh, preaching had more impact upon people then, but... But no, it's the same message that we proclaim today, the same Holy Spirit that's available to us. And uh, if you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, and if Peter were standing right here, he would say the same thing, change your mind about Jesus and identify with him and take whatever action is necessary to display publicly that you're now on his side rather than, than resisting him rebelling against him. And you'll receive forgiveness. He will lift the load of guilt from your life. And he'll give you power to live a new life. That's the message for you, just as it was 1900 years ago. It hasn't changed. 
one iota. And then secondly, I would say that we need to get about the business of making this message known. It really does not depend upon us and our skill and our ability. I, I don't, we're all afraid to witness. I'm afraid. I, one knee says to the other, let's shake every time I have to share the gospel. I never get over that fear, but I, I also never get over the, the excitement of, of seeing God use a message that I often garble, and sometimes I'm not very clear, and, but, but yet when it's, when it's presented and done so in a sense of dependence upon, upon Christ, things happen. People's lives change. Now, you have in your bulletins a little card. You don't need to take it out now, but it says Operation Andrew at the top, and and just to put feet on this whole thing, I'd like to ask you to take those cards home this week and follow the directions. The suggestion is that you fill in the names of people that you know, friends that don't know the Lord, whose relationship, whose friendship you've cultivated, and start praying for them. Become their friend. Do things with them. Now don't uh, ambush them. That's not the, the point. It's be a friend. Love them. Uh, spend time with them. Cultivate the relationship. Start thinking toward the Graham crusade and an opportunity to take them. But don't depend upon Dr. Graham to do your witness for you. Use the, the same uh, resources that the apostles had, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, to make the truth known. And God will use you as he used Peter on this, on this great day. Let's stand together. Father, we all of us feel uh, terribly inadequate when we think of the implications of the Great Commission. Uh, our, our real desire is to be uh, self-indulgent, to uh, spend our time feathering our own nest and pursuing our own career and doing things that we know are not wrong but yet divert us from the main course that you've laid out for us. We love to spend our time in the, in the desert and in the woods and on our motorcycles and fish and hunt and do those things that are such enjoyment to us. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to do these things. But again, Lord, this can, these can be activities that literally consume us and become our whole life rather than realizing that, that our life is to be lived out before you and poured out on your behalf and made available to be used to reach others. Father, teach us what you want us to do. Help us to realize that you mean it and that you give us everything we need to follow through in obedience. We entrust ourselves to you for this great task. Despite our fear, we know that you're a great and mighty God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.